Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. That's good. Good morning again, and uh, welcome again to Harvest. Um, I want to I echo what Julie said. I just want to say thank you uh, to everyone who served last week, who helped love on young families last week, who came alongside our community and said, hey, we're going to create a Halloween event that is safe as we know how to be, but at the same time allows kids to be kids after the year that we've had. And I'm, I'm telling you, there were more smiles than I've seen in a long, long time. It, it, like, seriously, I, I told the team this week that... I apologize for that extra noise. Um, I told the team this week that the Halloween, uh, the trick-or-treat pregame might be the most normal-feeling thing I've been a part of in 18 months um, because there were kids everywhere and there were kids smiling real big. But then again, when candy's involved, what do you expect, right? <laughs> For sure. For sure. Before we jump into the message and into the word, I want to mention one other thing. Um, most of you know, right, in American life, uh, in November, there's several holidays we celebrate, Thanksgiving being the biggest of those, and I'm certainly hoping that you're prepping your heart now for gratitude, that you're choosing gratitude, that you're, you know, how, uh, Thanksgiving is not an event. It's not a holiday. It's a way of life. And I hope that that's something you're able to embrace right now. But with that coming, I want to mention one other thing. This week is Veterans Day. And I certainly don't want to let the week go by without acknowledging that and without saying thank you. Um, do we have any veterans that are here today? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm sure we have some watching online as well. And all I know to say is thank you. Um, thank you for your sacrifice. To your families, thank you for your sacrifice. Um, it is deeply, deeply meaningful. In fact, I want to pray uh, for you guys right now. And then we're going to jump in. Uh, to the Bible this morning. So, Father God, I thank you for uh, the men and women uh, that have served um, this country for so many years. And uh, Lord, I just want to take this opportunity this week to recognize their service, to recognize their sacrifice, and to pray for their families. Lord, I know that um, these years... Really, these decades have not been easy. And so, Lord, I pray that in this season you would come alongside of them, that you would remind them of how, how much we as uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, but also as fellow Americans, appreciate their faithfulness and their consistency and their sacrifice over the years. Lord, we certainly want to take this opportunity to pray for any active duty uh, armed forces wherever they are around the world today, that one, they would be protected, and two, there would be peace. Jesus, we thank you that ultimately you came to give us that peace, and Lord, we pray today that as we study your word, that our hearts would be open in fact, our hearts would be changed because we worshiped you. Lord, I pray again for all of our veterans, uh, men and women. I pray tremendous blessing on them and on their families. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I have a problem I want to talk about today, but I don't want you to feel bad for me. Yes, I have a problem. But you have the same problem, so don't feel bad for me. It's a problem that lurks in all of us. It's a problem that, that keeps us from apologizing. It's a problem that doesn't force us but causes us to not admit it when we're wrong, that won't let us pull over and ask for directions, something that keeps us arguing even when we're not sure what we're arguing about anymore. Anybody else besides me been there? It's a problem that is defensive and judgmental. It causes us to refuse to be vulnerable, to keep people out. It forces us to stiff arm and cross arm 
It keeps us running and performing at unhealthy levels, believing we can never turn off because we have to keep going. The world, of course, will fall apart without me if I don't keep going, so I have a problem. It causes us to lie about our past, to exaggerate our accomplishments, to make us crave likes and seek out more on social media, to pad our resumes, to cheat so we can't lose. It causes us to refuse to celebrate when others win and maybe secretly makes us feel good about ourselves when others fail. It's the reason we buy stuff to impress other people. It stands in between our relationship with others, truthfully, our relationship even with ourselves, and most certainly, our relationship with God. It's what makes us disrespect others and assume the worst, while, of course, about ourselves, we assume nothing but the best. It's what makes us create divisions that are us versus them, where we are always good and they are always bad. It's at the root of one of the deepest conversations we have in American life today. Not only racism, the root of that, but also race baiting, pitting people against each other for power and politics. It's what makes us constantly and painfully aware of self. And I'm sure you know its cousin well, because I know I do. Of course, I'm talking about, if you haven't figured it out, pride. But its cousin, or the other side of the coin as I like to say it, is a friend we all call insecurity. And both are deeply rooted in a preoccupation with self. Pride makes us overinflate our egos Insecurity makes us underinflate ourselves, but both make us self-infatuated, and in the end, it deflates all our relationships. When I think that I have to be superior, it makes me think I have to make others inferior. An obsession with either is an obsession with me, and of course, underlying both is a constant mental comparison game that beats up and beats down both myself and others. It's pride that makes me feel like I have to be the center of the universe or even the center of attention. It's pride that makes me defense, defensive when someone who has my best interest at heart shares anything that remotely feels like criticism, even if I have literal egg all over my face. It's pride that makes me feel the need to be important, to be respected, to be admired, or to be constantly lifted up, up through likes on social media, through affirmations that come through flirtations, through puffed up egos and puffed up resumes. It's pride that makes us blind to our own flaws and actions, makes us judge not only the actions of others, but the intentions of others. And it's pride that tells us we have the right to hold on to resentment, the right to not forgive. It's pride that reminds me to constantly blame others and to refuse to take personal responsibility. In fact, in the end, it's pride that tells me I don't need anybody else because I've got this. I can handle this. I must handle this. I'm overwhelmed trying to handle this, but I can't possibly let anyone else know what I really feel on the inside. It's pride that refuses to seek forgiveness when we've done wrong, and it's pride that refuses to forgive others when they've done wrong. And in the end, pride is poison. It's poison for my soul. It's poison for our lives. It's poison for our relationships, and frankly, it's poison for our walk with God. I have a problem, but don't feel bad for me. Because we all have that 
problem. In the end, it's pride that says, you know what? I don't need God. Or there is no God. Or even worse, I am God. Why is pride such a part of us? Why is it such a big deal? And why is it that it's hardwired in our human nature to to need to have devastating consequences in our life just to get us to admit that we have such a problem? Why is that? I'm going to see if I can answer it today from the Bible. And if you have a Bible, you can open it with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out front on the welcome table. We have Bibles back here in the back. Uh, We give our Bibles away for free. If you need a Bible, we want you to have one. Everybody should have a Bible. The Bible is God's word to us. It is God's gift to us. And everybody should have it. So that said, I want to begin reading in Daniel chapter 4, where we're going to be today. We've been in a series called Thriving, Not Just Surviving. It's about mindset shifts that have to take place in our world for us to begin to see life from God's perspective. But when we begin to see life from God's perspective, that mindset shift causes a a change where we're not just holding on anymore. So Daniel chapter 4 begins like this. King Nebuchadnezzar, comma, I'm pointing out the comma on purpose. King Nebuchadnezzar, comma, to the nations and the peoples of every language and all who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. Now, you should get this by this point. This is a letter. There's a shift in perspective here. Up to this point, Daniel, who wrote the book, has described everything in third person. He refers to himself as Daniel. He refers to his friends by their Hebrew and uh, also their Babylonian names. But everything's described as he and she and it and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's third person. Suddenly, this makes a first person shift. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. This is a letter from the king addressing his subjects, and his land was great. You might remember that King Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon, one of the great ancient civilizations. But in ruling Babylon, he became dominant over most of his known world in the day. That is to say that he was the highest guy in the highest place in the land. And he had everything the world seeks. He had fame, he had power, he had wealth, he had everything our world lusts after, including lust. And here he writes a letter to his subjects. He goes on, It is my pleasure, verse 2, to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed Now, what are the next two words? Look at them with me. What what are they? What are the next two words? Say them out loud. For me. That the Most High God has performed for me. In fact, this phrase, Most High God, it's the first time it shows up in Daniel, but it shows up something like six, seven, or eight times in this chapter alone. And it's going to show up again and again the rest of the book. It's a title for God, a name for God, the Most High God. He's referring to Daniel's God. He's referring to the Hebrew God, the Old Testament God. For that matter, today we would say the Christian God. He says, I want to tell you what the Most High God has performed for me. So he's telling us his testimony. When you say, I want to tell you what God has performed for me, most of us expect what follows to be blessing. Let me tell you what God's done for me. I got that promotion. Let me tell you what God's done for me. He he took care of my family. Let me tell you what God's done for me. He gave me healing. That story is not this story. 
Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I had a dream that made me afraid. And as I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded, now this should sound familiar because this is the way This is the way Daniel's already gone, and it's the way Daniel's going to continue to go. That there are dreams, and he can't understand them, but they terrify him. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners came, they could not interpret it for me. And finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. And he is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I'm just going to pause there. And we're going to come back, and we'll read the dream in a minute. But he has this terrifying dream that is a warning. And frankly, he doesn't heed the warning. And he reaps the consequence of not heeding the warning. And he is brought from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He is literally moved from thinking he is superhuman to being a beast, literally, subhuman. In the end, this chapter ends up being about not only the pride of humankind, but our need to hit what we today would proverbially, proverbially call bottom. <laughs> bottom. In order to come to a place where that pride begins to get serious, where that pride begins to become, where we have an awareness that says this needs to be solved, this problem needs to be dealt with, and I can't do it on my own. Let me take you just a little further to the conclusion. After all of this, remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar's letter to all of his subjects. Verse 37, the very last verse, at the end of the chapter, he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. He's talking about Daniel's God, the most high God. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Now read this next phrase with me and read it out loud. Ready, go. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is what he means by I want to tell you what God did for me. Those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. The question really becomes, how bad will my pride have to get? And how bad will my life have to get for me to acknowledge my pride? In other words, the question is, just how low will I have to go? Just how low will I have to go? See, this is, this is teaching me something that I think... Have you seen it in your kids before? Have you seen it in your grandkids before? Have you seen it in your friends before? Because it's much, 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 much easier to see in others than it is to see in ourselves where we think, well, of course that's not the good way to go. Of course that's not the wise way to go. Of course you shouldn't do this or do that. Of course that's prideful. That isn't going to work for you. That isn't going to help you out. And you try to make a suggestion. And you say to, again, kids, friends, family, whomever, you say, go this way, not that way. I'm trying to save you. I'm doing this for you. I'm trying to help you. Make this decision. And they, the two-year-old, or the two-year-old and the 80-year-old in them, you know, says, no, no, I'm not doing it your way. And you go, but, 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 
Learn from me. Learn from my experience. You don't have to reap the consequences of this. You can, you can avoid all the pain I had to go through if you will just admit that this is a problem. Admit your pride. Go around this. Say, help me. What does the two-year-old do? Me, mine, my... There's a two-year-old in all of us. But what this verse is telling us is clear. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I'm going to be honest. That one verse of Daniel is key to understanding the entire book of Daniel. In fact, it's really, in a lot of ways, key to understanding all of the history of God all of the history of humanity, and in essence, all of the Bible. And if I'm honest, that verse should scare you a little bit. Now, I'm not a fear, fear-mongering kind of preacher. But there's this phrase in the Bible, the fear of God. And I think of it in terms of the awe of God, like, like the utter amazement of God. This verse should scare me a little bit. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The highest of kings, kings and queens, princes and princesses, but also all of the lowliest of humanity. When we walk in pride, he is able to humble us. This is teaching me, and this is the one thing that this is about. In fact, if you're, if you're filling in blanks today, I took a long time to get to it. But if you're filling in blanks today in the sermon notes page, in the listening guide, this is the one thing this is about. Jesus has a way of teaching me who is king and who is not. The world thinks Christians are people who think they are better than everybody else. And unfortunately, there are Christians who act like that. But Christians are not people who think they are better than everybody else. Christians are people who know for a fact they are not better than everybody else. And frankly, know that Jesus is. Jesus has a way of teaching me who is king and who is not. And you look at the life of Jesus and you look at how he would interact with, say, the woman at the well... Or the woman caught in adultery, and he is the most compassionate, gracious person, and I'm going to say God-man, right? God in the flesh that you have ever seen. But when the Pharisees stand up to him, when the Sadducees argue with him, when the rich young ruler comes along and says, no, I don't really need to let go of, Jesus has a way of teaching you who is king and who is not? Now, this might seem just slightly ironic. My last name happens to be. So apparently I am not the king. I should have learned that lesson in high school. I played baseball in high school. We, had, we, had, we didn't have letter jackets. I, I mean, our school did, but we had, we had, our baseball team had baseball jackets. It was like a thing, you know? It's like it made us stand out. And I had a baseball jacket, and on the back it just said my last name. And I remember one time, like, I played, I was a freshman this year, I played, I played freshman ball, I, if I was lucky to get to play JV, but you go to all the games, and that kind of thing, and we're getting off the bus somewhere, and back of my coat says King, and these guys, that, like, what, we were on the road somewhere, and this team we're playing, I heard this guy say, oh, that guy thinks he's all that, I'm like, you have no clue, I'm gonna ride the bench the whole game. You know, the thing is, we often don't see God because of our pride. But that's just because pride makes us look down all the time. You ask, why do we have to hit the proverbial bottom? It's because when you hit bottom, there's only one way to look. And that's up. When you look up, you find that God is still there. 
even when he doesn't have to be. That is its own grace and is amazing. So what I'm going to tell you is that when you're in the middle of it, as we're going to see, we're going to go back through the rest of the story, and we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's proverbial low, and and we're going to see how bad it got. And when you're in the middle of that low, that's not the moment you're typically saying, God did for me. You have to go through the low, through the repentance, find salvation, come out on the other side, and then you can tell the testimony. Then you can tell the story and say, let me tell you what God did for me. And you'll talk about your pain, and you'll talk about the pride, and you'll talk about the problem, and you'll talk a lot about God and how good God is. And people will think, really? That doesn't make any sense. Because you're saying that God took you to the lowest of lows. And you will, in essence, also admit, maybe, but truthfully, I took myself to the lowest of lows. And that's what it took for me to acknowledge God. Jesus has a way of teaching us, teaching me, who is God and who is not. I told you this verse should scare you a little bit, but it also, if you think about it, should bring you great, great comfort. Because, because it's good that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's good. It's really good because it's what I most need. So I want to give you today, just practically, four reasons to take comfort in, I'm going to call it God's painful work. Because when God humbles us, it's painful. Of course, when you humble yourself, you can skip some of the pain. And of course, there are plenty of verses in the Bible, right, to remind us of that, right? Pride goes before a fall. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the Jesus way. I mean, if you really, really, really want to go deep, and I don't have time to fully go into this today, we may dig into it when I come back to, to Daniel 5, which also happens to be about pride. But, but if you read the Bible in all its big context and you read Philippians 2 and how Jesus constantly humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and you read Isaiah 14, how Satan exalted himself to say, hey, I'm going to put myself above God, you see that the way of God is the way down and the way of sin is the way up. That this is the problem that has always been and it is the root of all of our problems. Four reasons to take comfort in God's painful work. Reason one, this just goes along with all we've been saying, that we should take comfort in knowing that Jesus still humbles the proud. He still humbles the proud. Verse 9 tells the story. Nebuchadnezzar says, I said Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no, di- no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. Notice just slightly the contrast, just quickly, the contrast between this and chapter 2 where he says to all the magi, like, tell me the dream and then interpret it for me, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you all. So he's already humbled slightly. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land, and its height was enormous, and the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth, and its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. And under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and from it every creature was fed. Now, we end up finding out that, that essentially there's, there's a like you are the man kind of moment here where you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the tree. We'll get to that. But, but I just want to note for you that, that kings and queens, that governments, that politicians are meant to be, that, that, that they're meant, if we understand leadership right, leadership is a place of service. That leadership is about serving others. That here, even in the dream, you see servant leadership. And if you pay attention to the kind of king the king of kings is, you see a servant leadership that serves the needs of others. 
And the visions I saw, verse 13, while I was lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from under its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. And then it says something interesting it, it shifts from it, the tree, to him. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, sets them over the lowliest of people. Verse 18, this is the dream that I... This is still Nebuchadnezzar's letter telling his story, telling his testimony to his subjects. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Daniel is much, 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 much older by this point. He has lived out decades now with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's taken Daniel 1, prisoner of war from his homeland to Babylon to serve the king. And he has taken it as a place of, frankly, servant leadership the entire time he has been there. Here he's saying, if only this applied to your enemies. Verse 20, the tree you saw, <clears throat> which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to wild animals, having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze and the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with dew of heaven. Let him live with wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the ox and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Now think about Nebuchadnezzar's problem here. He thinks he is sovereign over all the earth. And if you think, hey, I'm not a king, this is not my problem. I'm not a king and it's not... Actually, it is my problem. We talked about that to begin the day. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, listen to this plea, please... <laughs> Please, or be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Verse 28 says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to catch the next verse. Twelve, this is a warning, the dream. He's been given the opportunity to repent. Twelve months later, as the king was walking around on the roof of the royal palace, now we'll pick the story up in a minute, but suffice it to say, he didn't take the warning. He's the two-year-old that says, 
I don't have to do it your way. Thanks for the advice, but no thanks. This just reminds me that I need to take comfort in the fact of knowing that Jesus still humbles the proud. And the question becomes, how low or just how low will it have to go? This is largely about hardness of heart. The more hard, the harder my heart, the more self-consumed I tend to be. And the softer my heart, the more God-consumed I can live. And mark this, God can't be mocked. I guess the question is, will you have to lose your humanity? Will you have to hit bottom? And how bad will the bottom will have to be? In fact, how much loss will you have to go through? Some of us lose literally everything. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, has moved from superhuman to subhuman, a beast. And this reminds me that as long as I am stealing God's glory, I'm actively working against God in my life. It's good that Jesus still humbles the proud. Number two, take comfort in knowing that Jesus still gives second chances and third chances. But let's be clear, not endless chances. Jesus still gives second chances, third chances, fourth chances, but not endless chances. Verse 29. Again, we read this. Twelve months later, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And he said, it's, is not this the great Babylon as I have built at the royal residence by my power for the glory of my majesty? He's basically saying, is this not my kingdom? I mean, my kingdom has come. My will is done. Everywhere I go, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Notice again that there's a shift here. Back from Nebuchadnezzar talking to Daniel talking. Now third person again. We're telling, Daniel's telling us what happened. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of, the, of a bird. Now it shifts back. At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. Now he includes really a song of worship. He's in a pagan king who worships pagan gods, has an experience with the God of heaven, the Most High God, the Hebrew God. I'm going to say here, in my opinion, becomes a believer in Daniel's God in this moment. Because this is a song of worship. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Again, continuing the letter at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. It doesn't mean he's figured it all out or learned all the lessons. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Twelve months later, as he walked around on the palace, he is given the dream. He is given the... In fact, chapter 1, 
is a warning about Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Go read it again. Chapter 2 is a warning about Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Read it again. Chapter 3, a warning. Building a statue 90 feet tall, presumably of himself, made of gold, telling everybody else to bow down and worship it. The entire book has been about Nebuchadnezzar's pride, and there's been chance after chance after chance. And here he is given the vision and the dream. This is how low, just how low will I have to go? And yet 12 months later, he's walking around on his palace going, this is pretty good. Look at all I've done. And I'm telling you, you should take comfort in the fact that God gives second and third chances. That we serve a God of the second chance. But also take comfort and warning in knowing that God doesn't give endless chances. You can, biblically speaking, harden your heart so much and tell God no enough that there is, in a many senses, no turning back. And there is an eternity and there is a lot that rides in the balance. And now is the, in fact, second chances aren't just the pains of life and the lows of life and the bottoms of life. Every pain, every argument, every problem is a second chance. But you know what? Every blessing and every gift and frankly, every breath is a second chance. Take it today, like right here, right now. Like, like God, I, okay, I'm humbled. Just how low will it have to go? Number three, number three, take comfort in knowing that Jesus is still in control of those who think they're in control. Take good comfort in that because this makes that clear, right? That his dominion lasts forever of those who think they have dominion. These days, I find great comfort in this because it doesn't matter who sits in the White House, it doesn't matter who sits in Congress. It doesn't matter. who God is in control of those who think they're in control. We talk about all the time. We reach people who vote right. We reach people who vote left. We're not a church to be one side or the other side. We're here to say it's not about that. It's about following Jesus. But in the end, what we trust from Scripture is that as Dark as it feels in this world at times. And oh, has it felt difficult the last 18 months. Jesus knows what he's doing. And there's an ultimate plan involved. And Jesus is still in control of those who think they're in control. And the question for them is, how low will it have to go for them? But before you get, you know, sort of in the place of going, well, that's their worry, not mine. I just want you to realize that it's mine too. Nebuchadnezzar lost the very reason that he was king. This is what the whole, the whole tree image is about, that he was here to serve the people. And he made it about serving himself. This just reminds me that I also am here to serve not myself, but to serve others and more strategically, more importantly, to serve the Most High God. Six times that name shows up in this chapter. I said a while ago it was six to eight. It shows up in verse 2, the Most High God. Verse 17, the Most High God. Verse 24, the Most High. Verse 25, verse 32, verse 34. Doesn't show up. That name doesn't show up until Daniel 4. I think it's telling us something that I need to acknowledge that God is God of all the people who think they are God. And the question might be, how insane does my life have to get for me to acknowledge that? I have one last idea for us. I do want to land this and bring it home. Take comfort in knowing, oh, this is so good, that Jesus still saves the sinful. Jesus still pardons the prideful. Jesus still heals the hopeless. We should take great comfort in knowing this, that this is the story of salvation. Jesus still pardons the prideful. Verse 2, it's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Middle of the story, what did he do for me? He made me a beast. Literally. 
How can that be avoided? Verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, please, just, just be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, your wickedness by being kind to the impressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. This is a picture of repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of mindset. It's a change of perspective. It's a change of thinking. It is a literal changing of direction. And what this doesn't tell us, but we know from the rest of the Bible, is that this, this work of repentance and this work of salvation is not something we can do on our own. Repentance, yes. Salvation, not so much. Salvation required Jesus to come and die in my place. That Jesus needed, not needed, but chose to die for my sins. Because I got this pride problem, and you have this pride problem. And Jesus hung on a cross literally so that my pride problem was hung on him. The God, the God of the universe, King of kings, in the flesh, hanging on a cross, bearing my pride and all that comes with my pride. So that I can be freed. So that my sanity can be restored. So that salvation can be given. Jesus still does this very work for me today. And now like Nebuchadnezzar, I can say, I, verse 37, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven. Because everything he does is right and his ways, all of them are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's like he's almost giddy. Because he's telling us about salvation. Which just leaves me to finish with this. It's just, just real simple questions. To the saved, I would say, this is, this is Daniel's question. Can I celebrate when God saves my enemies? Because be clear, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was the enemy of the Jewish people. Can I celebrate that as a believer? I'm not so sure in our political climate today. That we're capable. Can I celebrate when God saves my enemies? Because that's what I think happens here. Nebuchadnezzar is saved. And for the believers, the already saved, or rather for the not believers, for the not yet saved, I think the question is what we've been talking about all morning. Can I lay aside my pride? And just confess that I need Jesus. We always end our service with two prayers. The first is a prayer of salvation. The second, a prayer of application, of discipleship, of walking with Jesus. The prayer of salvation is for those of us not yet saved. If you need Jesus today, you can receive him right here, right now. In fact, I would encourage you to do just that. To pray with me. I will give you the prayer and you can pray it with me, even online, right here, right now. Pray it like this. Dear Jesus, I have pride. And it's a problem. And I can't fix it. So I turn from me to you. Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And so I beg for you to forgive me and take over my life and be my God, Jesus. Come and live in me and live out your life of humility, of servanthood. Of sacrifice. In Jesus' name. If that's you and you prayed that with me today, man, that's the coolest thing in the world. We, we throw big parties around here for that. We celebrate that in big, big ways. We'd love to talk with you more about all that means. In fact, even if you're watching online, you can tell us because we'd want to know it. We'd want to celebrate with you. We want to help you understand it. You can tell me on a on a paper communication card, you can tell me online on the digital communication card. You can, 
You can tell someone who invited you to watch. You can tell someone who invited you to be here. You can email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at HarvestChurchEugene.com. If you're here today, you can find me just after the service. I would love to know that you received Jesus today. I said we end with two prayers. The second is always a prayer of application. Many of you prayed the prayer of salvation like a year ago or a decade ago or five, six decades ago, and that's beautiful. But this is fresh for all of us. I have a problem. Do you have a problem? Yeah. So I want to invite you to pray this prayer of application with me. And a little different than we normally do, I'm going to invite us to pray it. And there's no pressure. I'm not forcing you. But if you mean it genuinely as a believer in Jesus, then pray this with me out loud. I'll go slow. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are willing to do whatever it takes to give my attention. And thank you that you did all it took the cross to obtain my salvation. Jesus, I know you're alive and I humble myself before you. I confess my pride and I ask that you live your life of humility in me. Help me. Strengthen me on a moment-by-moment basis. I make you, Jesus, the center of my life. And I ask that you keep you the center of my life. It's all for you, Jesus. Pray in your name. Amen. This is what God's done for us. It's really, really good. It's really good. So often when we end our services, we come back up, we sing, right? In the, in the, in the olden days, I feel, like a, I feel like, you know, my dad or my grandpa, you know? Back in 19, what? You know, we used to go uphill both ways. We used to pass an offering plate. We, right? So, so these days, we end our services in different ways. Today, I just want to simply remind you of this, two things. One, back in the back are baskets for our communication cards and our offering. If you're a guest with us today, your offering is not what we're after. We care about you. Those of us that consider Harvest our home, we gladly take care of that. But we would love, whether you're here for the first time or the millionth time, to hear from you on those communication cards. And so those baskets, that offering box, all back in the back, please drop those things on the way out. But today, I'm just going to give you a benediction to go. You good with that? All right, so as you go today, I want you to go. And I want you to go in the deep humility, but also the deep gratitude of knowing all that Jesus really has done for you. I love you guys. I'll see you next week. We're dismissed.